0: I want you to imagine, and I know it can be hard sometimes to imagine things, but imagine, if you will, that uh, it is the very beginning of the first part of the first century, right? So put yourself back in that time period, and you're, you're in Israel, and imagine that you are a Jew, but you're not just any Jew, you're a scholar, You are uh, a Jew who's very intent on understanding what's going on with being a Jew. What's going on with God's law. You are a scholar of the law. You are a scholar of Torah. You have devoted your life to trying to understand God's book. Okay? And you've been, as a result of that, you've given your life to that. You've been given this honorable title. The title of... Pharisee. Now to us sometimes we might think of that doesn't sound like a we we kind of use that in a derogatory way, but at that time it was a very it was it was much of a title of honor. And the meaning, I don't know if you know the meaning of Pharisee is separate one. So we talked about this a few weeks ago that the, the people of Israel were were called out. They were separate. They were called to be separate from the nations around them. Well, a Pharisee is really someone who is called to be separate. Within that nation of people called to be separate. So you're kind of at the top, religiously. You're set apart from the rest of the Jews because of your knowledge, because of your religious zeal, right? So that's who you are, and as a result of that, you're, you're intimately familiar with the scripture, right? That's what you've given your life to, and so you are familiar with passages such as this one from the book of Proverbs. This is called the Oracle of Agur, This is part of it. He says, Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know... So what does that mean? Who established the ends of the earth? Well, you know who it is. If you're a Pharisee, you know it's God Almighty, Yahweh, the Creator. Obviously. But then there's that extra little line there. What is his name? Because nobody else could establish the earth and wrap up the waters and gather the winds. There's only one. There's only one, but what does it mean, his son? His son? Who is that? You see, this would be blasphemy to say that God has a son, except these are the very words of God contained in his book. So it's not blasphemy. So there's this confusion in your mind of, his son, what does that mean? And then there's passages like this one from Daniel chapter 12. It says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, so many who are dead, shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You go, okay, so, those who are dead are going to resurrect to life? The dead are going to come back to life, and not just back to kind of the life that we have, but to, what does it say, everlasting life. Well, that's very different than the kind of life we have now. They're going to come back to this everlasting life, and the scripture says it's going to happen. But as a Pharisee, you're price scratching your head, and you're going, how's that going to happen? And when is that going to happen? I don't understand that. And then there's passages like this one from Ezekiel. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. From all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So as a Pharisee, you read this passage and you say, whoa, God has promised to transform us. He said, what, a new heart and a new spirit and then even The Spirit of God to come live inside of me? Nothing like this has ever been seen. But this is God's prophet and God is promising this to us through his prophet. So what does it mean? And so you take all these passages and you say, how do I put these together? How do I get meaning from this? And when is this all going to happen? And sure enough, in the midst of this, remember you're a Pharisee, you're this particular Pharisee, and it's the beginning of the first century. In the midst of this, this guy shows up at the Jordan River. There's a picture of the Jordan River. He shows up and he starts preaching about repentance. And he's preaching about what he calls the kingdom of God. His name is John. And he's actually baptizing people in this river. They're like, what is going on? with this guy. And so you and the other Pharisees kind of get together and you're like, we've got to find out what's going on, so we're going to send some representatives. So you send some representatives out there to ask him, John, why are you doing these things? Who are you? And his response is this. He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whom, whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And who is he talking about? Like, what? what is that? That doesn't help me. But then comes this other man, and he begins to do amazing things. And he, he takes water, and he turns it into wine. And he even seems like he can heal people from their infirmities, and their diseases, and their blindness. And most importantly, he speaks with authority on the thing that you have authority on, which is the scripture. And he isn't a Pharisee. He doesn't have that title. He hasn't been called out like you have. And so, who is this man? Who is he? See that one that John said I, I, one's coming after me. Is that who he's talking about? I don't know. Now, as you might have guessed, I've put you in the shoes of a guy named Nicodemus. You've probably heard of him before. And the guy who performs the miracles, obviously, is Jesus, right? We we live in the time that we do, and so we know kind of how the story goes. But given that backstory, I think it's helpful for us to understand the questions Nicodemus probably had in his mind of how does this all this stuff fit together? Because we get a picture in John chapter three of this interaction, this conversation between Nicodemus and John, and Jesus. So let's let's pick it up there in John chapter three. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. And he says this, he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher. Come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. See, Nicodemus has all of this knowledge about the scriptures, and yet he has all of these questions. Like we talked about wait, eternal life and the Son of God, and how does this all fit together? He has no way to piece it together. So he seeks out Jesus, this miracle worker. He says, hey, you're a miracle. And really, this statement is a question. It's not really phrases a question, but it is a question. He's saying, hey, Jesus, is God with you? That's what he's asking. And Jesus, of course, doesn't answer the question directly. He says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus probably hears this, and he surely must think, how in the world is the answer to my question about, is God with you? How is that found on whether I am born from above? I don't even understand what that means. And so Nicodemus responds with another question. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Which is a pretty legitimate question to ask, right? Like, we think any of us would probably ask that same question. Like, how exactly... Can that happen? And what are you talking about? But so we've got to understand the Pharisee belief. The Pharisee belief at that time is that, hey, we are born physically, we live a life, and then we die. And then, after we die, if we've honored God enough in our life, we're going to see a new life. We're going to see that resurrection. We're going to experience a new life with God. But that just means that this life that we have between birth and death is the life that we have. And we've got to do the best we can with the life that we have to be ready for the next one. We get one shot. It's all up to us. And so Jesus responds to this and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so do you hear those echoes from Ezekiel, right? Ezekiel said, a new spirit I will put within you. And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to put a new, God's going to put a new spirit in you. So could this be, could it be this new spirit is a new birth? How can this happen? How is this possible? Nicodemus has lots of questions. This is all flying in the face of his Pharisee understanding of how things are supposed to work. And this understanding that life is what it is. And Jesus, as if he was reading his thoughts, because he probably was, he says this. He says, do not marvel that I said to you. You people must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And it's interesting for us to know, we don't catch this in our language, but in Greek, the word for wind and the word for Spirit is the same word. And yet somehow in that context, context, it was able to draw that distinction there. So Jesus is really saying here, don't wonder that I say to you, you have to be reborn in order to get the new Spirit. It has to be given to us by God. And so Nicodemus must surely think, wait, wait a second. We're born, and so is this new birth like the resurrection after we die? Is that what this is? How can God give us his spirit now? How can I be reborn now? So he says in wonder, how how could these things be? How can that be? Which, of course, is a legitimate question. And Jesus, sort of knowing the thoughts and the confusion, he responds and he says, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Now, we might read this and think, well, that seems a little rude. (laughs) But it wasn't rude, right? This is Jesus. I think Jesus is actually giving a compassionate answer to him and saying, hey, look, these things are hidden even from the eyes of you who has given your life to the scriptures. It's okay, Nicodemus. It's okay that you don't understand these things. Let me explain it to you. And Jesus hits right at Nicodemus, right where Nicodemus is battling, which is in what the Scripture says. He says, let's talk about the Scripture. He meets him there, just like he meets each one of us, right where we need to be met. And Jesus confirms, and he encourages and says, yes, yes, Nicodemus, the Scripture is Correct. All these things that you've read, they are correct. And so he goes on and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you people do not receive our testimony. If I have told you all earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? See, Jesus is reminding Nicodemus, he's saying, Hey, look, I have performed miracles using the stuff of earth, food and drink and health. And that is my qualification to speak to you about spiritual things. Jesus is reminding Nicodemus of this. And so then Jesus closes one of these thought loops and he says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Do you see that connection? Nicodemus, I'm sure, saw it immediately. Jesus was making that connection right back there to Proverbs 30. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? What is his name? And what is his son's name? He's making that connection. He also makes a connection to a passage we hadn't looked at yet, which is in Daniel chapter 7. He says, in that passage it says, "...I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man." And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying very clearly, what? If he says, oh, the Son of Man, and he connects it to that, he's saying this. Check it out, I'm the Son of God. That's what he's saying. And he's saying it very clearly so that Nicodemus can hear it and see it. And yet Jesus doesn't stop there. He proceeds immediately to say, not only is that what I am, but let me tell you what I'm going to do, what my purpose is on earth. He says, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have what? Eternal life. Jesus, he connects this, he connects eternal life back to a story that has been well known and is known to us as well from the Israelite wandering in the desert, the story of Moses and the snake. And I could just sort of recap that for you, but why don't we just read it here? Uh, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people because, you know, They were hard-hearted and kept doing the wrong stuff. And so God sent punishment and discipline to them, right? And they bit the people, which sounds terrible to me, but that's what they did. So those people, many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take the serpents away from us. And then God asked Moses to do this thing. Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. See, Jesus is showing Nicodemus, Hey, you know the scripture. You know the story. You are of called out one from the called out nation. You remember this thing that happened? Well, it's going to happen again. God set that in place for you as a picture of what he would do for all mankind. And we know how the story is going to unfold. And so there's all these loose threads here in Nicodemus's mind. Who is God's son? What is this new spirit? What is eternal life? And Jesus ties them all together. And the next thing he says... Remember, Jesus is God's Son. He is the Son of God. And He brings eternal life. That eternal life that was talked about there in Daniel, He brings it. But He doesn't bring it to those who do good works. He brings it to who? Those who believe. Jesus goes on. He says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. That new spirit from Ezekiel, that new spirit, God's spirit that's coming to live, he's saying it's coming now. Not just at the end, not just after you die, it's coming now. And just like with Moses and the snake, see in that story, it wasn't, okay, you guys go do a bunch of stuff and you'll be healed. It's, look to the snake Look to the thing on the pole and be healed. Look to it. Believe. It wasn't about doing a ritual or actions or you know, special dances or whatever sort of thing we could do or good works. That healing, spiritual healing, comes from looking, repenting, and believing. And so Jesus finishes this interaction with Nicodemus, the final thought. He says, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. God's spirit has come into the world, into those who believe. And many are going to hate it. So that's the interaction we have between Jesus and Nicodemus. And we say, okay, how do we apply this to our own lives? Well, it's the gospel. This is the good news. The good news that we don't have to work our way to be right with God. We just have to believe. And so really Jesus is telling us, hey, we get a new Birth. We get a new birth. Well, some things we can remember out it this week as we walk into the week here. First thing we can say is, who is that for? Is that just for special people? <laughs> is that just for people who do good stuff? And Jesus says, no, it's not. It's for those who believe. It's not just for one race of people. It's not just for the ones who are called out. It's not for one nation. It's not just for people who are good. Right? It's such a common thing in our culture. You say, well, why, why might you be right with God? Oh, I'm a good person. Well, are you good? Are any of us good? I think every single one of us is snake-bitten by sin, and our sin separates us from God. And so I really think, who is it for? It's just simply for those who listen and believe, those who turn their eyes to Jesus. Who do you know who needs to listen and believe? Who do you know? Where is it from? Where's that new birth come from? Well, obviously it comes from God, right? He's going to put his new spirit in us. It's coming to live in us. It comes from God. But I think there's sort of another spin I want to put on it here, which is that it's coming from the future. And I don't mean like, you know, the new birth got in the DeLorean and and, and came back in time or something. I go, okay, what does I mean by it came from the future? Well, like... Nicodemus was right. There was always a promised resurrection. There's always been this promised regeneration of life at the end. And so he wasn't really wrong in that. But Jesus came and brought a piece of that regeneration. A piece of that new life he brought to us now. When we look to him, there's healing now. Just like the Israelites looked to the snake and they were healed then. It wasn't they looked to it and then they got regenerated later. No, we we see elsewhere in the New Testament, it talks about the Holy Spirit is, is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. It is a piece of something from the future brought to us now. We don't have to wait until we die to be right with God. I think that's a really cool part of this new birth. And we could say, well, what does it do? What does this new birth do? Well, just like in Ezekiel, it's really the fulfillment of what was said in Ezekiel. It takes out that cold heart of stone that's in us and gives us a living heart. And of course, we're not talking physically, we're talking spiritually. Spiritually, we get a new heart, and this is manifested in the person who believes in in a couple ways. One, it, it gives us a new spiritual awareness. Uh, a m- number of you here are parents, right? Like like I am and I know, I don't see I think our families with the little babies are probably affected by the plague or whatever is going on and they're not here today but we all sort of know like little babies when we've experienced little babies we go, oh their awareness is very small and we even understand from, from science and research that children who are even inside their mom do have some awareness they can sense pain and light and sound and other things but as they're born and as they grow we see it with our little kids, their awareness, it's, it's like what they're aware of starts to gradually grow and grow and grow. And then they become teenagers and it shrinks a little bit. No, I'm just kidding. And then it goes and grows, right? No, that's what it is. And it's the same spiritually with us. We get reborn spiritually and our awareness increases. Augustine described it as our, he said, our loves get reordered. And so if you haven't believed, if you haven't been born again, this might be something that's difficult to understand and it can be something that's very difficult for us to explain to somebody who has not been reborn, who hasn't believed. But if you have, you can testify and say, yes, it is true. I didn't understand it before and now I understand it. Our spiritual awareness comes alive gradually as we grow in this new life. It also gives us a new spiritual identity. You see, children are born, and regardless of who your parents are, you're born and your identity is kind of wrapped up with them. It really is. See, Jesus said, God so loved the world, which means he just loves us. He loves us because our identity is with him. Not because of things we do, but because of who we are. He loves us that way. And so when we believe and when we are reborn, our identity becomes no longer in the things of the world. But our identity becomes wrapped up in Christ. Do you ever wonder why the world is in an identity crisis? Everybody's confused about who their maker is. And so how do we get this rebirth? How do we get this new birth? Well, it's really, really quite simple. He tells us there that first thing is to repent, which just means to turn away. I'm going to be reborn. I'm going to turn away from the things that I, my sin that I think is going to get me right. Things that are going to satisfy me. And I want to turn to God. I want to repent. See back there in, is, in the Israelite wandering and the, Moses puts the snake up on the pole, there's something that people had to do. He didn't just put it up and was like, okay, everybody's covered those who believed had to turn and look and believe and they received that healing and it's the same with jesus it isn't good works they didn't have to go do a bunch of stuff and then look at the pole, or they didn't look at the pole and do a bunch they just had to look and believe and in the same way that's what we have to do is to repent and to look and then believe which is really simple and you go well why is it so simple well, it has to be, right? And think, about, think back to the analogy of, that Jesus makes to, to birth, to physical birth. As you who have experienced childbirth or seen it, you realize that baby really doesn't do a whole lot. <laughs> They're not really involved very much in the process at all. Who, is, who does all the work? Mom does, right? No, dads, you don't do any of the work. Just mom. Mom does the work. And moms are nodding They're like, yes, yes. And so why would we think of spiritual rebirth as different than that when Jesus draws that analogy? We don't do any of the work. Jesus does all the work. Jesus experienced all of the pain. Jesus lived the sinless life. Jesus died on the cross. We don't have to do that. Just like a mother does all of the work and takes all of the pain. And there's moms out there who are nodding going, yes, yes, Jesus did it for us. So that's how we get it. We repent and we believe. And so what's the result? What is the result of the new birth? We go, okay, great, the new birth and the new spirit. And the, what is, what's the result of that? Well... What I love about this interaction is that this isn't the last we see of Nicodemus. And so we get just a couple more little touch points in the book of John that tells us, well, did this make any difference for him or not? The first one is in John chapter 7. And so there's this incident going on. here we get the Pharisees, the called out ones again, the separate ones. And they say, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in Jesus? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Well, that's an interesting question. If any of these Pharisees believed in Jesus, <laughs> there's at least one. Nicodemus, who'd gone to Jesus before and who was one of them, said, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Nicodemus takes a stand, and he wouldn't take that stand if he didn't have faith he didn't have a new birth then again later we see at the end in John 19 Nicodemus is there again and it says he, he you know who had earlier come to Jesus by night came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds which is a lot and a lot of money And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And when you understand the Jewish customs and what these Pharisees were involved in for Nicodemus to be anywhere near the burial of a dead body on the night before the Sabbath or the Passover you go, whoa, he would not do that unless there was a new birth and a new life in him. And so what is the result? The result is a changed life. The result is a changed life. That's what we're aiming for. And I would trust that's what we could learn from the scripture. Let's let our lives be changed by that. I'll pray and we'll close today. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this interaction, this picture of your son, Jesus, come down from heaven to meet us right where we're at. And Lord, many of us may have intellectual questions and theological questions and other things that we wrestle with in our hearts. And God, I thank you that you meet us right in the midst of that. And right in the midst of that, you tell us, this is how you could be right with me. Repent and believe. I've sent my son. He's going to do all the work. He's going to take all the pain All you have to do is believe. Thank you, Lord, that you will regenerate us. Someday we'll pass from death, pass through death into eternity. And there will be a resurrection. And there will be a regeneration. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us, those of us who believe, you have given us that deposit of the Holy Spirit, a new spirit living in us, taking out our cold heart of stone and giving us a live, beating, spiritual heart. Your heart. I guarantee that we'll experience that later. Thank you for giving us that, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our family, for our church, that we get to walk together and with you through life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.